Benson, and welcome to Light On, Light Through, Episode 58, a conversation with Paul J. Finer, Town Supervisor of Greenberg, New York. That's the town of Greenberg, New York, a little north of New York City, a town in which I live, part of Westchester County. Now, usually I'd say that Paul Finer will be a guest on Light On, Light Through. But actually, what you're going to hear is a conversation that Paul Finer and I had last Friday on Paul's WVOX radio show that's broadcast out of New Rochelle. It's called The Greenberg Report. So Paul and I talked for about 40 minutes last Friday about all kinds of interesting things, including Paul's blog. And that blog is available for you to read anytime you like at pfeiner, that's P-F-E-I-N-E-R, dot blogspot dot com. And one of the things that makes Paul Feiner very interesting and significant is he's one of the few executives of any town or city that actually maintains an active blog and talks to the citizens who live in his town through that blog. And we talked about a lot of other interesting things as well, including the role of new media in Barack Obama's administration, which uh, will begin pretty soon since the inauguration is January 20th. And we also talked about Caroline Kennedy and why both of us strongly support her appointment as senator from New York, which we hope David Patterson, the governor of New York, will make possible. So without any further ado, here's uh, the interview in its entirety from Paul Feiner's Greenberg Report on WVOX Radio. Now live from Whitney Media, the Greenberg Report with Greenberg Town Supervisor Paul Feiner. Here's Greenberg Town Supervisor Paul Feiner. Good morning. I'm Paul Feiner. And I'm uh, the Greenberg Town Supervisor, and I want to wish everybody a very healthy and happy and successful um, New Year. Uh, today, um, we have as our first guest, um, Paul Levinson. And Paul um, is an author. He's professor of communications and media studies at Fordham University in, um, in New York City. Uh, he's written novels, uh, fictions, and has a very... Um, interesting, um, you know, blog and uh, takes advantage of all the modern uh, media, uh, you know, technologies. So welcome, Paul, to the program. Well, hey there, Paul. Happy New Year, and I'm delighted to be back on your show again. Great. Um, The first um, question is, um, um, how has the media changed since you've been, um, you know, professor at Fordham? They've changed enormously, and uh, as a matter of fact, I'm putting the finishing touches on my next book, which will be called New New Media, and that will be published uh, probably this this summer. And the reason why I uh, call the book New New Media, we've all heard of new media. This is you know the web, email, uh, the Internet. But really, just in the last four or five years, there have been such great developments in what we do on the internet that it's really as different from the original new media as they were to television and radio and motion pictures and and printed newspapers so to give you just one example howard dean ran for the democratic nomination in two thousand four that was just four years ago and he made an attempt to use the internet to mount his his campaign and uh, it looked initially like he did have a lot of support but his campaign shattered after he lost Iowa and uh in contrast you have Barack Obama running in 2008 he won Iowa but he ran into some obviously very powerful competition with with Hillary Clinton and yet Barack Obama went all the way uh, and won the Democratic primary and, of course, won the general election. 
Well, one of the differences is back in 2004, you know, sort of hard to believe, but there was no YouTube. That's just something that came along in, in 2005 and 2006. And I remember when I first uploaded some video clips of, uh, from some of the shows that I had been on. I'd been on The O'Reilly Factor, and I'd been on Jesse Ventura's uh, short-lived show on MSNBC. This was back, uh, I uploaded the, the video clips from those shows to my YouTube account back in July and August 2006. And it seemed like the most original, unusual, out-of-this-world thing to do, that you could put something on the web and people could watch just as if they were watching television. Well, Obama and his campaign very astutely used YouTube and other aspects of the Internet. Uh, another example is something called Twitter, which is receiving a lot of uh, attention. This is a system in which people put into the system a quick one-liner, two-liners, uh, kids use it, you know, I'm hanging out at the pizza place, pizzas it tastes great or whatever. But it has profound political possibilities as well because it makes it much easier to organize rallies and, and get your support position where, where you need them. And these are just two of the many, many media that either didn't exist four years ago or existed in such embryonic form that they didn't really play a role. And I think that the Obama presidency will not only be known as the New New Deal, as the cover of Time magazine very cleverly labeled Obama and his relationship to the economic crisis and how he can help improve things, but in addition to that, Obama will be known as the new, new media president, because he is really the first president to understand and take advantage of these new media. Just one other thing on this point, your listeners may have heard, and you may have heard, that there was some talk that Obama would have to give up his BlackBerry. And now in several interviews, he's saying he's going to try not to let that happen. And just that one little example shows how astute Obama is about the need to stay in touch with people in a different way than people have been doing that previously. That's uh, so interesting. Do you think um, the Internet is more powerful than, say, the New York Times and the major uh, media? Well, one of the things about media evolution uh, that I've noticed ever since I began studying media and uh, I put a lot of this into my 1997 book called The Soft Edge, A Natural History and Future of the Information Revolution, is that when new media come along, they don't just instantly replace the previous media. Uh, it takes a long time for new media to come in and get much more important than older media. So, for example, nowadays, after all these years, we still have Broadway theater, we still have motion pictures that people go out to movie theaters to see, even though people watch much more television than they do going out to a, a play in a theater. All of which is to say there's no doubt that, that the New York Times, and with it newspapers in general, and we can add into that network news on television, all of those older media are in decline. And if you, if you think of this in terms of drawing a graph, the line for the New York Times is going down, and the line for people getting their news on the Internet is going up. Uh, but that doesn't mean the Times is unimportant. It's still an important player. And I, I have to say, again, as someone who studied the history of media, I'm not at all unhappy to see newspapers become less important. And the reason is they have a very top-down way of reporting the news, meaning there's an editor, an editorial staff. Nothing gets uh, published unless a group of editors think that it should get published. So, you know, the New York Times says uh, it, we, we print all the news that's fit to print. Well, that sounds nice, but actually the reality is they print all the news that they deem fit to print. It's not that somehow they objectively 
print everything that's important. In contrast, on the Internet, if you look at any blog, if you look at a system like Dig uh, or Reddit, these are systems in which people put in links to articles that they think are important, and anybody can put in a link to any article. And then the readers discuss the article, rate the article as to its importance. And in many ways, that's a much more democratic way of reporting the news. But we still you know, need newspapers. None of these Internet news organizations have the kind of hard investigative reporting that newspapers and traditional media have. So at present... Newspapers are declining, but they're still important. As we move into the months and certainly years ahead, we're going to see even more decline in newspapers and more growth in web news delivery. And also one of the nice things about the new media is that it's really involving lots more people, um, people who were never involved or are now becoming activists they're monitoring the way government is um is operating and they're able to communicate their thoughts a lot of them may be wrong or um mean-spirited but um at the same time um they're able to articulate their concerns and i think it forces elected officials to listen i agree with you completely and one of the ways of looking at that is in the old media system people were consumers of news they were not reporters of news, and they certainly were not conveyors of their opinions. So if you wanted a political analysis, if you wanted to know whether Caroline Kennedy would be a great person to have as a New York senator, which I think she is, you would have to rely on you know someone writing an op-ed or a news commentator on television but now, as you just aptly said, anyone on the web can put up a post on a blog. And the whole notion of democracy has taken a much better turn. You've been actually part of this as well. I know you talked about dial-up democracy where people would call in. You can't really, I think, in the long run, have a vibrant, healthy, democratic system if people are just consumers of news, and when you can get them into the mix, when they can, in some cases, even report the news, but certainly comment on the news, that's the best form of, of democracy because it gets everyone's opinions into the mix. And I should mention, by the way, I just want to remind our listeners, um, we have a very interesting guest, Paul Levinson, who's a professor um, of communications and media studies at Fordham University and also a a writer of uh, novels, short fictions, and nonfiction um, works. Um, but I should also mention, I'm just speaking for, for myself, I have my own blog, um, and I let people write anonymously on the blog. And, you know, a lot of people are, are very nasty, and people come up with, you know, make up stuff that's not true and all that. But there's also, what I'm finding is, since I've let people write anonymously, that I'm able to get a sense um, from my blog what some of the issues and controversies are going to be well before it hits a town board meeting or um, or you know media attention because sometimes people could say what's really on their mind um, on in a blog and I've sometimes reacted because I've read the blog and if I hadn't had a blog or use the internet or just relied on the newspapers I would never know what people are saying. Um, not in my presence. Well, that's a very important point, and uh, I'll probably put something into my book, New New Media, quoting what you just said, because it, it, that shows exactly what we've been talking about, that here you are an elected official, and you actually use the power of New New Media to, uh, to do uh, a more informed job and to be more on top of, of the issues. This goes back in many ways to John Milton, and what he wrote about in the Areopagitica, his great masterpiece on, on freedom of speech. And, and his point is the best way to combat falsity is not to suppress it, but let truth 
battle it out in the marketplace of ideas. So, as you just said, and I've certainly been a target of many of them as well, and I have anonymous commenters on my blog, InfiniteRegress.tv, and especially during the past election, you know, the, some Republicans, not that uh, all Republicans were nasty, but these, you know, comments mainly came from Republicans who were just incredibly vicious, nasty about me, about Barack Obama, about this and that. But what I always said is, you know what, I'm glad to see your comment, because this provides a record of what people are thinking, and it gives me and other people a chance to answer these comments, which I, which I always did. So there's no value in a democracy to people sort of simmering quietly, seething with their opinions, and, and then they you know, take it out on Election Day. I mean, that's still better than a dictatorship. But a far better kind of democracy is one in which people can express their opinions and elected officials can know what, what they're thinking. But do you think sometimes, on the other hand, that by me having a blog and letting people come up, you know, some people are just very, very angry and nasty, and it may be the same five or ten people, am I, um, you know, encouraging you know, some more people to, um, you know, to start articulating those type of comments, which would have normally been suppressed. I mean, my philosophy is let people say whatever they want. And as you said, after they're reading, you know, the blog comments, people could make up their own mind if people are nasty or not. Well, first of all, let me say, you know, I, it's always easier for uh, someone else to say, hey, uh, you ought to keep your blog open to nasty comments about you because they're not nasty comments about me. Right. And so, you know, it's one thing for me to speak theoretically, but, you know, I've been stung, as I said, by very nasty comments. I mean, I, the kinds of comments I occasionally get on my blog, you know, what is someone, you know, with your uninformed opinions, teaching at Fordham University, you are a disgrace. So, and that actually would be a mild example of some of the comments I've gotten. And I, and I know some of the comments that, that have uh, appeared on your blog, and you're right, that what a blog does is it empowers miscreants to come on with their opinions, and it gives them a soapbox, and they, they feed on those opinions. There's even a a name for them uh, that is given on the internet, trolls. They're often not even interested in real dialogue. They're just interested in attracting attention. But, as in everything else, there's a, a trade-off in whatever you do. And I think what you're doing is, on balance, better than a situation in which you didn't have a, a blog. See, that's, and, that's and, basically you know, my... Th we, we, we can't expect perfection. So, yeah, there's no doubt there are negative, unpleasant things in empowering people. Again, that's part of the problem of democracy. You may remember, Paul, the first time that we met, I mean, it seems like a long time ago now because we've, we've been in such good touch over the last couple of years, but I guess it was when, maybe the, the summer of 2006, I came to, uh, to a meeting at the Greenberg Town Hall. It was about uh, whether Verizon should be given an opportunity to offer competition to Cablevision, and you supported that position, and I did too. And I came there to, to talk about that. But I was, I, I, you know, amazed at some of the nastiness that came from people who, you know, stood up at the microphone and were talking. <clears throat> but you can't have it any other way, and it's far better that, that you have an open meeting like that. And even though it empowers people who like the limelight with nothing really to contribute except nastiness, that's the price you have to pay for an open system. And uh, so, I, yeah, I do think it's it's worthwhile. And and it also basically provide, as I said before, if an elected official really listens, you could learn from your detractors, you know, a lot. And you could also improve a lot because many of the things that your detractors say there's always some truth to even anger. Um, and, you know, I've, I definitely feel as an elected official, I've benefited from, you know, from hearing what, what's on people's, um, um, you know, minds. Um, 
um, I hope uh, would you be able to uh, participate in the interview um, after the break because we're going to be going into a break in about a minute. Oh, absolutely. I'll because, stay here as long as you like. Yeah, because this is, you know, really um, interesting. But I wanted to ask you about Facebook because I, um, and we're going to probably in about 45 seconds be going in a break, but I just started actively um, uh, using Facebook, I'd say maybe two, three weeks ago. And is that immediate? And I'm finding my, my niece said, you know, most of the people who use it are really, you know, students, but I'm finding that more and more adults are now using it and i'm wondering if you'd give us your thoughts on that impact on politics well both facebook and myspace the two giant social media systems are having an enormous impact and you're quite right uh, up until pretty recently these systems were mainly a place where college students came and talked about various things in fact facebook started as a very specialized system by a Harvard University student just uh, for Harvard University. And then it got picked up by a lot of other universities, and now it's open to everyone. And I've noticed, actually, just in the last six, seven months, I've gone from about 300 friends to, I think, over 800 friends. And it's precisely because people of all ages are, are joining into the system. And it's very interesting because... So let's take a break, and then right in about a minute or so, we'll be right back, and we can continue our discussion with Paul Levinson, who is a prominent professor at Fordham University. Hello, this is David G. Hartwell. I'm a senior editor at Tor and Forge Books in New York, and I've been editing science fiction since 1970. I've edited a lot of people over the course of my career, but I'm pleased to also be the editor of Paul Levinson. I edited his first novel, The Silk Code, and I edited his most recent novel, The Plot Saves Socrates, and all the books in between. Author Paul Levinson. Once again, here's Greenberg Town Supervisor Paul Feiner. Hi, I'm Paul Feiner with uh, Paul Levinson, who's um, Professor of Communications and Media Studies at Fordham University, um, and a very interesting guest. And he's um, been interviewed um, all over um, you know, the nation and... His articles and op-eds have appeared in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Newsday, uh, the New York Sun. He's been quoted in newspapers and magazines, and we're very fortunate to have him as as our guest um, You know, today. Um, we were talking about Facebook, Paul, and um, do you feel it's losing some of its power to Twitter? No, no, not losing its power at all. I mean, this is like one of the things that... Uh people who report on these things love to do is hit one system against another. And it is true that if you look at uh, the end of 2008, Twitter probably moved up more quickly than did Facebook or any other system. So there was a piece actually in the uh, Toronto Globe and Mail that, you know, Twitter is the new thing everyone is talking about. Uh, But Facebook says it has 140 million active users. Twitter probably has about 40 million active users. So, I mean, you're talking about huge numbers of people in either case, but, but Facebook is still the, the bigger system. And, and more importantly, the two really work together because what happens is you can design your Facebook page so that Twitter one-liners automatically appear there. And in case any listeners don't know, as I mentioned earlier, what Twitter does is it conveys these quick little snippets. Some people refer to this as micro-blogging. And you can use it for all sorts of things. For example, I have my blog, Infinite Regress TV, and my podcast, Light On, Light Through, and, and several other things that I do online automatically feed into Twitter. So every time I put in a new blog post, for example, Twitter sends out... 140 character message telling people about the blog post with a link where they can read the blog post. So what you really have is a an interconnected series of new new media in which they they don't so much compete with each other as actually enable each other to even do a better job. Let, let me mention something else about Facebook though which occurred to me uh, during the break. One of the things about Facebook is it's never been easier 
for a citizen or someone who's not a citizen to start some kind of group on behalf of some kind of social cause, uh, however important or trivial. And as a matter of fact, I did that myself just about three weeks ago when this was on the Thanksgiving weekend when the Mumbai massacre was occurring. And I was trying to find out what was going on, and I just come back with my family from, from Boston. It was, it was the Friday of, of the weekend. And I, I turned on, it was about 7 o'clock in the evening, and I was looking at various news stations, and I found much, much to my irritation and annoyance that on MSNBC, rather than reporting about this very, very horrible crisis, instead of live reporting, MSNBC was replaying some of its documentaries about you know, life in a South Carolina prison, what they call their dock block, having nothing to do with the news. So I got so annoyed about this, I started a group on Facebook called Stop the Dock Block. And I, by the way, I'm sad to say, so far it hasn't had that much of an effect because MSNBC was up to its old tricks uh, over the uh, Christmas holidays and, and New Year's as well. But now, last time I looked, and it's not a huge group, but I think there are like about 250 people who've joined the group. And we'll see what happens. You know, if enough people join the group and go in there and comment and say, look, we love MSNBC, but please report the news during a time of crisis. Don't waste our time with these canned documentaries. That could have an effect. And that group is just one of tens of thousands of groups that people have created on Facebook. And it is a way for people, doesn't matter where they live, uh, what they're doing, who they are, what time of day or night, they can log on to Facebook, go into that group, see what's going on, make comments. And that also empowers people to get things done and bring issues to, to greater attention. That, right. It's another way of uh, reaching out to people who normally wouldn't get involved. You could be an activist and Never leave your uh, living room. Exactly right. And in the past, um, you know, I think, you know, one of the interesting, you know, aspects is in the past you had people, you know, let's say at a town board meeting, we usually get the same five or, say, eight people showing up at every meeting. And the town board will tend to listen to those five or eight people thinking because they'll say they represent the civic group, that group or that group, and the civic group may be just themselves. But, you know, you know, so since there were a few people involved in attending meetings, a few people really had an inordinate amount of, of, of influence. But now with the blogs and the internet, the average person, people who are not interested in going to meetings or watching meetings on TV, could get involved. Absolutely right. Again, nothing is a perfect solution. So I'm sure there are some people who feel, look, I don't enjoy logging on to Facebook. I don't feel like writing a blog. I don't want to be bothered looking at YouTube or producing a video or a podcast or anything like that. So the point is there will probably always be some people who won't participate for whatever reason. But as you've just correctly said, what the Internet has done is open the door much wider than it's ever been before in terms of making it easier to participate. And, you know, I do a lot of my work at 2 o'clock in the morning. It's nice and quiet. You can do it at 9 o'clock in the morning, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And one of the things that we haven't talked about, which is also important, is the advent of devices like iPhones and Blackberries and, and little mobile devices, which people can use to connect to the Internet, means also for that reason it's never been easier. You, you don't have to be seated behind your desk. You can be walking in the park. You can be sitting on a train. And actually, you know, talking about how fast things happen, my most recent published nonfiction book is called Cell Phone, the story of the world's most mobile medium. That was published in 2004. And, I, you know, I, I, was, I was looking ahead, and I did talk about cell phones that allowed people to connect to the Internet. But there was nothing like iPhone 
back in 2004. So this is really a profound revolution right before our, our eyes. It really is. Uh, you know, it's interesting because President Obama, as you said, got elected because of, um, you know, partially because of his use of the media and organizations like Move On. Um, now there's a ton of new activists, you know, internet activists, um, who, um, you know, who got involved in getting him elected. And once he takes office in less than two weeks, the probability is that he's going to be making decisions that um, that he may that some of the activists may not like, because on every issue there's two sides of um, of a of a position. Is he going to have trouble because of the the internet as well? Well, you know, only trouble if we think that the best kind of presidency is one in which there are no adverse or negative opinions. But most observers of the Bush administration, whatever they may think of President Bush's decisions, whether they agreed with them strategically or politically, but I think most people, including Republicans, agree at this point that one of the problems is that Bush was in a bubble, and he was not in touch with a lot of what was going on. And let's even not talk about Iraq, which is a case in itself, but, but look about look at what happened with the response to Hurricane Katrina. I think everyone in the country, other than the president, knew that things weren't working with the initial rescue and relief uh, effort down there. And things obviously were moving so badly so quickly that just waiting a couple of days made that catastrophe much worse. Waiting to really get in there and, 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 and bring the, the aid and the relief that the people needed. So I think that Obama will be well served by being in touch. It won't be any bed of roses. But then again, I don't think anybody would would run for president if what they wanted were just everyone saying, "Oh, you're so wonderful." You have to have uh, a very thick skin, and you know you know this as well. And that's what public service is. And it doesn't really help to try to disconnect yourself from the world, which is what you have to do to disconnect yourself from criticism. Right. Um, what's your um, What's your uh, thoughts on um, uh, the vacancy in in the Senate? The, the Senator um, uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, soon to be vacancied. Well, as soon as I heard that Caroline Kennedy was interested in becoming the next senator, I was I was delighted, and my heart really leapt. And critics have said, well, what's going on here? Is she just entitled to this? Do we live in, in some kind of aristocracy or a, a, a political realm in which there's a royalty and just because your last name is Kennedy. But it goes way beyond Carolyn's last name being Kennedy. What it, what it gets to is the fact that her father and her uncle, uh, John F. Kennedy and, and Robert F. Kennedy Jr., ch- changed the United States in the 1960s in the way that many people hope Barack Obama will here in the 21st century. You know, I was young then, but uh, not too young to remember the difference between the 1950s and the 60s. And Caroline Kennedy was part of that. Yes, she wasn't an adult. She was just a little girl. But, but she was part of that profound revolution. And the fact that someone whose father was president and assassinated whose uncle was assassinated running for president, the fact that someone like that would be willing to step up and say, I want to help and do what I can to help the people of New York, I think is a wonderful thing. And I have to say, I've been annoyed at the mass media, some of the reports, who cares whether Caroline Kennedy says you know? I mean, maybe I'm guilty of that myself, and I'm sure if somebody's been listening to this uh, interview here on WVOX, they can probably count the number of times that I said you know. But what does that have to do with what kind of senator Caroline Kennedy can be? And, and I'll tell you this, if David Patterson does not appoint Caroline Kennedy, 
he is going to go down in flames to defeat when he runs for governor. He certainly won't have my support, and I doubt if he'll get support from many important people. So I'm hopeful that he will do the right thing and appoint Caroline Kennedy to the Senate. What do you think um, Andrew Cuomo will say if uh, she gets it, or his people? They won't be happy, and I have nothing against Andrew Cuomo. Right. But, what? But how would you... Andrew Cuomo to, to Caroline Kennedy. Uh, unfortunately, only one person can be appointed senator. Right. And when Caroline Kennedy, who, as I'm sure your listeners know, also did a very courageous thing in this past election, she stepped up there with Teddy Kennedy in January 2008. That's a long time ago. And, you know, the race at that point was really undecided. And in many ways, Hillary Clinton was still the more powerful candidate. And Caroline Kennedy put her name and reputation on the line by supporting Barack Obama. So that was a very uh, courageous thing to do. I'm sure uh, Andrew Cuomo will be disappointed if he is not appointed, but he has several options. He can run in the primary in 2010, and then the people can decide. But at this point, for, for the next two years... It would be something that would be tone-deaf to the heartbeat of the cosmos if Caroline Kennedy is not appointed. Uh, and, you know, it's sort of interesting because I was speaking to my wife and we were talking about the impact the Kennedy endorsement had on the Obama race. I think it really was a turning point because, um, as you said, Hillary was the front runner at, at that time. And I think Obama had Oprah and um uh, Oprah and um, you know and the Kennedys within a short period of time, and I think that generated enough momentum. And if you look at how close the presidential primaries, um, you know, were, um, I, you know, I the Kennedys completely. probably put him over. Yes, I agree completely. One of the things that often happens, the deceptive vision of hindsight, is because Obama won by such a huge margin. And, as you know, the uh, votes of the Electoral College were formally reported in the House of Representatives yesterday. So Obama got 365 electoral votes, one vote for every day of the year. So he won by a landslide. But that was not at all clear back in January 2008. And I think that Caroline Kennedy's endorsement, in some ways, I think much more even than Ted Kennedy, because although Ted Kennedy's endorsement was important, he already was in politics. But this is the first time that Caroline Kennedy ever endorsed someone in such a public way. And when she got up there and said, my children are telling me that Barack Obama is, is someone we should take seriously, and Barack Obama is the first person who has come along since my father, John F. Kennedy, who has that kind of vision and excitement, that was extraordinary. The and that th- shows what she's made of. The other thing that people have... As you know in an interview. The other thing that, you know, I feel in her favor is that if she is appointed, um, she will definitely have the ear of, um, you know, President Obama. And almost a day after um, she's in probably Obama will be in New York and will be helping her get reelected. So there's probably going to be tons of additional help that New York State's going to receive because they're going to try propping her up. That's right. And what it's doing, and if Carolyn Kennedy is appointed, which I I hope she is, it's, it's really extending Obama's revolution, which I think is a really wonderful thing. If you think about it, five, six years ago, who would have predicted that on January 20th, the first African-American will be inaugurated as president? That's extraordinary. But who would have also predicted, just a couple, just a little over a year ago, who would have predicted that Caroline Kennedy uh, was uh, to become the, the next senator from New York? Nobody would have predicted that. And I think that's an extraordinary thing. It is indeed recapturing and extending part of the excitement that we all felt back in the 1960s. Right. And, um, you know, so it should be a, a very interesting, um, you know, process. If um, Kennedy is not um, selected, do you think that's going to hurt Governor Patterson's 
ability of interacting with um you know with with the White House and also um when you're sort of leading people on somebody like Kennedy you know she's gotten a lot of attention um that she's being you know considered if she doesn't get it doesn't that really get the Kennedys the Kennedy faction really furious with 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 Patterson Yes, and look, let's face it, uh, David Patterson, he's a good man. Uh, he was not elected himself to the governor, the governor's office. He basically uh, moved up to that position uh, because Elliot Spitzer, as we know, resigned. So he, Patterson is not exactly in the strongest position. He needs the goodwill of New Yorkers and the goodwill of powerful Democrats, the most powerful Democrats. And as I said, if he does the wrong thing and does not appoint Carolyn Kennedy, he will, uh, he won't even survive the Democratic primary, is my prediction, Do you let think... alone the election. So he has a chance here. He should be happy that he's been given this opportunity. He has a chance to correct something horrible that happened in history. You know, you can't go back in a time machine and prevent John F. Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy from being assassinated. That is beyond anybody's power. But you can appoint John F. Kennedy's daughter for two years, and then she'll have to run in 2010 to the Senate. That is, I think, something that corrects this wound that we all who were alive back then sustained in the 1960s. So, in a way, this is a golden opportunity for David Patterson to do maybe the most important thing in his political life, and I'm hopeful that he will do the right thing. Do you think? How do you would you assess uh, Governor Patterson? Well, I think so far he's done a good job. I think it's a difficult situation for anyone to become governor under the circumstances that that he did become governor and some people have said he has been wrong to basically beat the drum for more money for new york state because it makes us look weak but look we're all facing this economic crisis and i think that governor patterson has done the right thing by trying to call attention to that I'm not 100% pleased with the way he has handled this appointment to the Senate. I heard yesterday, uh, and I didn't hear the interview directly, so it was just a report that uh, Patterson had said that it didn't count in Carolyn Kennedy's favor that she hadn't held elective office. My best advice to him is not to make statements. We don't need running reports. Just make the appointment and, and, and do the right thing. And I think he has a chance to become uh, a really important governor, to be elected uh, for a term of his own, if that's what he wants. But this is a very crucial uh, juncture for him. And some of the things that some of these New York politicians have said, and you know, I, I'm, I'm a Democrat myself, so, uh, but, but I'm, I'm always sorry to see and hear Democrats say things, comparing Carolyn Kennedy to J-Lo and... As Calvin Kelly aptly said, she wished she looked as good as J-Lo. So, I mean, th- th- there's nothing whatsoever wrong with J-Lo, except for the fact that J-Lo is totally unpolitical. So what kind of a, a ridiculous statement is that? And uh, some of these other points that were made, and I don't know for a fact. No one knows if Andrew Cuomo and his people are behind that. But Andrew Cuomo also should take it easy on this. You know, he's still young. He has a career ahead of him. And... If he is appointed senator rather than Caroline Kennedy, it's not going to do him much good because I think a lot of people will take it out on him too in the next election. Let me ask you um, another question. We only have about two minutes uh, left. Um, you know, one of the problems that every elected official, from the local level, myself to Patterson and everybody else, has is budget cuts. How do you handle um, cutting services in an economic time? Um, because nobody likes to see their services reduced, but at the same time, they don't want the taxes to keep going up. That's not an easy question, but I am a great believer, as is Paul Krugman, in a vigorous Keynesian approach 
to what government should do in terms of services during economic crises. And that's basically try to increase the services, which helps people get back to work, stirs the economy. The Republicans are now working overtime. One of their main talking points is that Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, actually made the Great Depression worse, which is complete nonsense. You know, Hoover made it worse. Roosevelt did the best he could. And as Paul Krugman, the Nobel laureate, has pointed out, actually Roosevelt should have done more, and that would have probably ended the Depression sooner. So what I think all you know executives need to do is not worry so much about balancing the budget, but instead try to keep services up, try to keep people working, pour as much money as you possibly can into the real economy. Not so much Wall Street, but that's another story that will take more than two minutes to talk about. But but into uh, situations in which people can have real jobs that that produce and get things done. And there are no magic wands, but but that's a much better approach than saying, oh, we've got to tighten our belt now, and the government has to be careful not to spend money. That's exactly what Herbert Hoover did in, in 1931 and 32, and uh, the results were catastrophic. Great. Well, we're out of time. I'd just like to thank you very, very much for uh, joining us. You were a fascinating uh, guest, and I thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure as always, Paul, and keep up the great work. Athens, 2042 A.D. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Entertainment Weekly says the plot to save Socrates is challenging fun. The New York Daily News says it's a Da Vinci-esque thriller. And Curled Up with a Good Book says... Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. Well, I hope you enjoyed the conversation you just heard uh, that I had with Paul J. Finer, who is the town supervisor of Greenberg, New York. By the way, he has been town supervisor since 1991. And I think with his smarts and his savvy about new media and lots of other things, that he can go much further than Greenberg Town Supervisor. But we're certainly happy to have him here as Greenberg Town Supervisor. You'll find over on lightonlightthrough.com, that's L-I-G-H-T-O-N-L-I-G-H-T-T-H-R-O-U-G-H, Dot com, lightonlightthrough.com. You'll find there a link to Paul Finer's Wikipedia page and links to his blog and lots of other good things. Let me also mention that now that the new television season is in full swing with 24 and Lost and Battlestar Galactica, you can find my three to five minute reviews of each episode of those shows over at Levinson News Clips. And that's L-I-V-I-N-S-O-N. N-E-W-S-C-L-I-P-S dot com, LevinsonNewsClips.com. So if you love television the way I do, 
I hope you come over there and enjoy some of my brief podcast reviews, which, by the way, I usually put up within an hour after the episode has ended. The Light on Light Through podcast. And that's the sweet music of our promo suite. And you're going to hear promos from Mike Thinks News, the savviest podcast in town. For Sean Farrell's patio book of my first novel, The Silk Code. We're just about out of time. I look forward to talking to you next time. In the meantime, sit back, relax, and enjoy. the Mike Thinks Podcast, www.mikethinks.com. News and current events with an opinion. The Mike Thinks Podcast. It's the news you missed. www.mikethinks.com. The Locus Award-winning novel by Paul Levinson comes to life in this free podcast novel. Journey into the ancient world. Witness the wonder of ages past and join Phil D'Amato in a struggle against forces both ruthless and unseen. Visit www.thesilkcode.blogspot.com to learn more about the author and the novel. And subscribe today at patiobooks.com.